Uh, Jay, are you ready to rock and roll? I've, I'm always ready to rock and roll. <laughs> Lena, are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome, everybody. We are thrilled to have you here on this special evening as we get ready for John Lennon's 82nd birthday. I can't believe it because to me, he just seems like that 20-year-old rocker that Patty Singer walked up to me and showed me that 45 and told me I had till recess to fall in love with one of the Beatles. And I have to tell you, as a funny side story, Patty Singer, I looked for her for years and years and years and years and years, and I recently found her. And tomorrow we are going to speak in person for the first time since the sixth grade. But if it hadn't been for her, I never would have found the Beatles. But John is getting ready to celebrate his 82nd. What a wonderful week. And he always said that you are never gone. You're never dead until the last person who remembers you says your name for the last time. And we are going to say his name many, many times tonight. So he is definitely still living, still very much a presence in our world. And I'm Jude Sutherland Kessler. I am um, a John Lennon biographer. I've written the John Lennon series. Well, I've written the first five and a half books in the series and getting ready to go for part two of volume five, headed toward nine volumes. So spent the last 36 years trying to tell John's life story. And so wonderful tonight to be able to combine our She Said, She Said podcast, along with the Focal Points webinar, put them together into one for an evening that I don't think you are ever going to forget. We are so thrilled to have with us this evening John's attorney in the Roots trial against Morris Levy and the author of a wonderful, and I mean, it is, it's a gem of a book, a book entitled Lennon, the Mobster and the Lawyer. And we're going to introduce him in just a minute. Lena is holding it up. And Lena, tell us about yourself. Well, good evening, everybody. I'm Lena Stagg. I'm the author of the Recipe Records series of rock and roll themed cookbooks. They are designed to bring some uh, fun and um, a little bit of rock and roll into your kitchen. So it's designed to bring people together to enjoy music and trivia for wonderful artists, especially the Beatles. My rock and roll Beatles cookbook is called Recipe Records, a culinary tribute to the Beatles. And it contains recipes such as strawberry pie forever with a wonderful strawberry pie recipe submitted by Jude Kessler. And she said banana bread. And my favorite, I am the eggs man. So it's, it's a delightful book. And we're going to be giving away a copy of this book that's tonight. So uh, hang on to your hats. So in a little while, we'll have trivia and you'll have the opportunity to um, get a copy of this book. I did see on the chat, Jude, that yeah. Carol... Carol Guestwire said that her chat does not work. We got so, Jeff Emmerich working on it right now. Okay. He's sitting here working on it. So give us just a okay. minute. Rand Kessler, i.e. Jeff Emmerich, is, is working on it. You guys, um, Recipe Records has graciously consented to be our sponsor for tonight's show. And this is as the book that she's giving away. But there's so many great books. There's the 60s edition 
with, that has all those recipes that your mama used to make back in the 1960s. And then there's the rolling scones, let's spin the bite together. And the bad boy, these are your bad boy recipes. Okay, and the chat then is on. chat is on, guys. Jeff Emmerich has it fixed. Thank you, honey. Thank mm -hmm. you very much. This is the classic, the Recipe Records original book that has music. Uh-oh. Hi, Tom. Tom can you still see me, Lena? Yes, I do. Okay. And I, I can't see the screen, but that's okay. Rand Rand can get it back for me. But um, this book has music from the 1950s up to the 1990s and recipes. And there we go. And music history. So check those out. And thank you, Lena, for being our sponsor for the show tonight. Now we have... I mean, we've had some great guests and we've been blessed. I mean, we got to speak with John's sister, Julia Baird, last year and Rogue Best and the Beatles' first bass player, Chaz Newby. And we've just had some wonderful guests. But I don't know when I've been more excited to have someone on because this person um, not only is a man that John respected and trusted and became a part of his inner circle of friends, but he really stepped up and rescued John at a time when something was going on in his professional career that truly upset John. Um, John was very meticulous about the way that his work was uh, handled and prepared and displayed to the public. And we'll learn more about what happened in just a few minutes. But in 1973, our guest tonight got a case that involved John Lennon and became a very important part of his life. He was an extremely successful Park Avenue, New York attorney who had handled major cases. For example, he was the one asked to do the salary arbitration for Major League Baseball for the Cincinnati Reds and the New York Yankees, um, the Cleveland Indians and the San Francisco Giants. I mean, that that is very, very big league. But he was also, for you Dillon fans, the person who was asked to represent um, Albert Grossman, Bob Dillon's first manager in the litigation between Grossman and Dillon. So, I mean, that that in itself is huge. And, and listen up, because you might need to know this later, he uh, represented Terry Knight, the founder and the uh, manager of Grand Funk Railroad when litigation cropped up between the band and Terry Knight. So what a perfect person to be able to represent John Lennon. And I was when I was getting ready to meet him at the Fest for Beatles fans, I was a little bit nervous because I thought, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, I hope I don't say anything amiss. This is a Park Avenue attorney. Turned out to be one of the sweetest, nicest, most down-to-earth people in the world. Lena and I are just thrilled to introduce to you the one and only Jay Bergen. Yay! Thank you very much, uh, Jude and Lena. Uh, it's a thrill to be here. I've been looking forward to this since you issued the, the invitation, oh, I don't know, it was back in August, uh, I yeah. think. So uh, I've been looking forward to it uh, very much. Um, I, I consider myself, you know, uh, people ask me, well, what, what did you do when you were, uh, uh, you know, before you were retired? And I said, well, now I'm a recovering lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> that is... So I might have been uh, a lawyer on, on Park Avenue at one point, but uh, uh, that's way in the past. And I'm, I'm just thrilled to be here. Thank you. 
you're a great author as well. I mean, really, I mean, your book reads nothing like court court documents. Uh, I, I myself am a paralegal in the past, and I've read a lot of court documents. And this book is a it is a fascinating. Well, it's a, a great read. It's a riveting read. So um, I have to tell everyone that the, my first exposure to this book was as an audio book. Um, yeah, I got in Messenger one night a note from um, Scott McKinley saying, I'm, I'm attaching a free audio file for you to listen to of a new book. And I get a lot of those. And, you know, I, some of them are okay. I was out watering the flowers one night. I had my phone with me and I had downloaded it and I started to listen and I was hooked. Hooked. I, I carried that phone with me everywhere I went. I had a hard time sleeping. Well, I always have a hard time sleeping, but I have a really hard time sleeping because I was so into this book. I listened to it three times on the audio, on Audible, and then I purchased, someone says the book was awesome. I couldn't put it down. Yes, I love Jay's book. It is a great book. And then I ordered the book and started making notes in the book. So it is it is really great. And I highly recommend that everyone get both the Audible and the book. And, and because Scott brought it to life, you'll love both of them. But one note that was in Bob Gruen's forward was this sentence. He said, Jay had a long, successful career. But most people want to know about the case he handled for the most famous member of the most famous band in the world. Now, the latter part of that sentence is going to be what we're going to really talk about tonight. But let's first go back to the first part of that sentence, Jay's long, successful career. I just gave the highlights, Jay, uh, of your career, and I'm sure there are other wonderfully fascinating cases. What stands out in your mind besides John's trial? What other cases stand out in your mind? Well, I thought of something just my, my memory, you know, kind of popped up something just a few days ago. And I remembered in 1964, when I had only been practicing law with a, uh, a law firm on Wall Street, Donovan Leisure, Newton and Irvine, that I became involved in my first music case. And the piece of music was the song from Mary Poppins, Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> really? What could someone, what's, what was the case two, there? Two songwriters named Gloria Parker and Barney Young claimed that they had coined the word supercalifragilisticexpialidocious and wrote a song about it years and years before. And they tried to uh, get an injunction stopping the release of Mary Poppins in 1964. And, and I was one of the very young associates on this case. Uh, and uh, I found, and one of the other associates found, we, we were able to find and trace the, the song back to the early 1930s, because it was a song that, that or, the, or the word uh, was used in kids' summer camps. And the Sherman brothers who wrote the music for Mary Poppins, they were in a summer camp and they wrote a song about supercalifragilisticexpialidocious and they wrote the music for uh, Mary Poppins. And so I was on the case where uh, the, uh, the plaintiffs, these two songwriters uh, were denied uh, the right to uh, stop the release of Mary Poppins and they ultimately lost the, the lawsuit. 
So is it kind of like if you use Q-tip too much, then they can't use that as a brand name anymore because it's become part of the vernacular? Was that the what they? Yeah, that, you know, that was one of the yeah, it was one of the points because the firm I was yeah. with did a lot of work for the Disney Corporation, uh, who had produced and and released uh, the film. But you know, I I went on from there, as you pointed out, to uh, represent Terry Knight. Uh, and Grand Funk Railroad. And I remember that in uh, kind of October or no November of 1972, uh, the band played in Madison Square Garden. And the next day, the Saturday, I took um, Donnie Brewer's deposition in the case. And that was my first uh, instance of getting involved in that case. And uh, I kind of handled the case for the next year and a half until it was finally, uh, finally settled. Wow. That's amazing. Lena, settled I know very, you're... Settled very favorably to uh, Terry Knight. Wow. She, Lena is a, is a music expert, so I know she's interested in that. <laughs> I saw Grand Funk Railroad recently, actually. I don't, I'm, I don't know how many of the original members are still in it, but... Um, but let's backtrack just a little bit, Jay, uh, a few years. And you had actually met John Lennon in person in New York on another occasion. I think, in fact, it perhaps barring Shea Stadium, it was the single most dramatic night of John and the Beatles' career. Tell us where you first encountered John. At the Forest Hills Stadium which was part of the Forest Hills Tennis Club uh, in Queens. Uh, that's where the U.S. Open was played every year before they built the, the big stadiums uh, that they're, that, where it's played now. And uh, I got two tickets, and uh, my wife at the time and I went. It was uh, August 28th, 1964. And the Beatles landed on one of the back tennis courts because it was basically a tennis club. So there were a number of courts, but the concert was going to be in the main stadium, which seated about 16,000 people, I believe. And the Beatles landed on one of the back tennis courts in a helicopter. So that was the, that was the first time, that was when I saw them. And I think that was uh, their first, other than the Ed Sullivan show, their first live performance in New York City. It, is, it, it was just a night of nights. I think of all of the nights and I, all of you Beatles fans who really know their performances, I don't know if any of you were actually there, but to watch that helicopter slowly descending, descending, descending while thousands of flashbulbs are popping and they're looking down at this sea of faces, looking up at them and screaming. And it was this you know, young guys descending from the sky kind of thing. It was, what a night. It was one of the biggest nights the Beatles ever had, and you were there, Jay. Yeah, it was That's quite tremendous. a night. It was a special night. Yeah. That's and the tremendous. tickets were only like, I think between like $3 and $7, depending yeah. on, you know, where you were seating. It's amazing. amazing. So you were truly a fan of the Beatles and John. Well, and really. it was you know, it was shortly after that that uh, my wife and I saw A Hard Day's Night at the uh, Fabian's Fox in downtown Brooklyn, which was one of these wow. 
big old Art Deco theaters at the time. And uh, I remember walking back to her apartment, uh, I said to her, um, that these guys are really, they're for real. That was a very <laughs> clever, very funny movie. And, and with, of course, as we all know, they wove the songs into the, uh, the film beautifully. Great movie. Yeah. They did. So if we skip ahead now, it's, it's February in New York. It's cold. It's 1973. And you come into work one day and you're approached by someone who tells you that you are going to manage a case involving some litigation that John Lennon is facing and um, something that has happened to him. Tell us, because even after doing 36 years of research on John, this was not something that I knew a lot about. So even though we've got lots of, of great Beatles experts here, Jay, tell us a little bit about the background of that case. Well, my, uh, my partner at the time, a senior partner, David Dalgenis, was representing John in connection with the, um, you know, the dissolution of the Beatles partnership. And, and I had handled a couple of really minor matters uh, for, for John. Uh, and this morning, this February 3rd, uh, David asked me to come down to his office. Uh, he asked me to go to a meeting at Capitol Records that afternoon at five o'clock and that there was some talk about a bootleg uh, John Lennon album about to be released by somebody named Morris Levy. I didn't know anything about Morris Levy, although David filled me in later on and basically told me that he was, uh, he was a mobster, a gangster, tied up with the mafia. But I went to the meeting. There were two lawyers uh, who did a lot of work for Capitol Records in New York there, and one lawyer from the headquarters in Los Angeles. And they were starting to fill me in on what they had heard. And the uh, conference room door opened and in walked John Lennon. And I had no idea he was going to be there. I'm not even sure that the Capitol lawyers did. Uh, David, David didn't warn me, so I don't think he knew either. So uh, after the initial uh, shock, uh, you know, we introduced ourselves and uh, John started filling us in on on what he knew uh, about what was happening uh, and how he had mistakenly given Morris Levy in November of 1964, uh, just a few months before that, uh, a rough mix of the rock and roll album that he had started recording in 19... Uh, 1970-73 with Phil Spector in Los Angeles. And at one point, um, Capitol's lawyers asked me about getting an injunction to stop Levy. And I said, I, I really think that's a mistake. Uh, it may be hard to get an injunction. Uh, but the other thing is that, you know, whoever fires the first shot uh, in a lawsuit, you lose control. You don't know what's going to happen next. It's like, it's like a war. They, it's their, they have the burden of proof. Excuse me? They have the burden of proof. Yes. And Huge burden. So I said to John, when, how long will it take you to finish the album? And he said, I can do it in two days. So he went in on February 4th and February 5th, finished it, shipped it to Capitol. Morris Levy started advertising the, the, what he called the Roots album. It was... John Lennon sings the great rock and roll hits, Roots. 
And uh, <laughs> he started advertising it that weekend, February 7th. Uh, Capital came out with the official version on uh, the 13th of February. And then uh, Morris stopped the advertising. He had sold about, I think, 1,270 copies. And then about two weeks later, he filed the first lawsuit, uh, claiming basically that John and he had an oral agreement to um, sell the album on TV for four ninety eight. It's really fascinating. Um, I looked at the album covers for both of the albums, and the Roots album just looks hideous. It's it's so hideous, and the Capitol album is very polished and very chic. That was really a brilliant move for you to um, push him to release that. Um, I mean, how well, insightful. Well, John, John said, after I suggested, you know, when can you finish it? He said, I'd rather finish it now. Uh, I'm really kind of sick of it. I've never had an album take this long. And I'd really just rather get it done. And, and remember, right. the Walls and Bridges album was only out uh, from September, which he had recorded in uh, the summer of 1974. So uh, the, the two albums were kind of bumping up against each other, but uh, sure. people wouldn't think they had any choice. Right. So as, as these initial meetings began to take place, you had a very unique um, experience in you were, you were called to the Dakota to meet Yoko Ono. Tell us about that meeting and um, what took place. Well, John called me one day in March. Uh, this was after uh, the second lawsuit was filed. Another one, they, uh, they filed a second lawsuit in federal court. And he asked me to come up and meet Yoko the next day. And I said to him, you know, fine, what, what should I bring anything? He said, no, no, uh, Yoko just wants to meet you. So we met in this large uh, living room in their apartment in the Dakota. Um, she had read both of the complaints. Uh, and it was pretty obvious that Yoko was, was very smart. I mean, I knew something about her background as an artist and some of her artist, artistic endeavors, and um, she asked a lot of very uh, penetrating questions. Uh, she really had, had these questions about the case. She said, you know, John and I are very concerned about this case. Uh, we want to uh, keep down uh, the amount of money that John's going to owe Morris Levy. And I said to her, well, if I have anything to say about it, he's not going to owe them any Morris anything because, uh, you know, I'm going to work as hard as I can on this. And finally, after an hour, I don't know, an hour and a half or whatever it was, she stood up and said, uh, well, thank you very much for coming. I really appreciate it. And I left. John was not at the meeting. I didn't see him. Um, but this may sound like I was a little bit, uh, well, more than a little bit naive, because I didn't realize until many, many, many years later that that was an audition. Uh, I guess it was after I really realized how close the two of them were. Uh, and if she hadn't liked me, I would have been out. That's true. Right. They would have gotten somebody else. Yeah. Yep. 
No doubt about it. Jay, people in the chat are asking some questions. And guys, you are going to get a chance in just a few minutes to um, ask questions um, directly of Jay. If you'll put them in the Q&A, if you go to the bottom of the screen, you'll see Q&A. And if you'll type your questions in there, we'll get to them in just a few minutes. But Jay, one thing that they're asking that goes with what we're talking about right now is, did you ever feel that uh, you and... John were in any physical danger because of Levy's associations with the mob? No, it, and it, you know, and it never came up. Um, I mean, I learned some other things about Morris that were, uh, that could be frightening, but uh, I just thought, and John and I never discussed it. Um, I just thought that because of the high profile, uh, John Lennon, uh, federal court, uh, that Morris wouldn't dare uh, do anything, and I think I think Morris thought uh, that bringing by bringing these lawsuits, he'd be able to bully John and Capital and EMI into some kind of a deal, because Morris Morris was a grifter. He was one of those people who, if if there was a legal way to do something or an illegal way to do something, he'd always pick the Ill illegal way. Mm -hmm. He was a crook. And, a, you know, a real con artist. So I think the whole thing really backfired on him, uh, Jude and uh, Linnea. Yeah. Yeah, not what he thought was going to happen at all. Well, to me, the most important part of this book, and I don't know how you guys who are listening feel, because many of you are saying that you've read it. Um, I realized very early on that I was going to get something in this book that you never get. Never. Books always say new and never be seen and never before seen photos. They're never new and they're never before seen. And they are, you know, new information. It's not new information. It's the same information. This book has brand new information because John's court testimony is stuff that you have never heard before. And one of the things, Jay, that, that, you guys talked about was the importance of John helping in the production of the record. He said that he and George Martin and the other Beatles worked together to produce their records. And it was very important to him. What did he say as he's giving his court testimony about how crucial it was for him to produce the records? Tell, tell us what you remember about his opinion about that. Well, I mean, John, John was a, a perfectionist, uh, and I was able to use his testimony because I carried around with me through like five house moves over 40 years, five or six banker's boxes with the entire trial record of testimony. And I decided when I, when I decided to write this book because nobody had told the story about this period in John's life when he dropped out of the music business in early 1975, got back with Yoko, she got pregnant. Uh, this was a different John Lennon than a lot of people had written about and, and heard about. He was, he was chilled out, uh, he was happy, awaiting the birth of his, uh, the, the child that turned out to be Sean. And he was very involved in the two of us working together on the case. And I can actually, uh, read something about what he said uh, about the uh, sequencing of the albums. 
I thought that was the most interesting part, the, the sequencing, how each song was important and where it went. Well, just let me read you a few, few of his uh, lines that are in the book, because yeah. I thought it was very important to put in the book some of his testimony. So I asked him, when you talk about the order, you are talking about the order of the songs in the album? Yes. I mean, it is one of the most painful processes because sometimes you think you have a great track or song and then you put it next to something and it sounds disgusting and you have to go through the whole process again of maneuvering. It is like a jigsaw puzzle, only there is no set answer. Only you know the answer. So you can put the puzzle together and it seems to fit, but when you look at it, it is wrong. So you have to pull it apart again and do it again. And that's, that was kind of his, you know, his main discussion uh, about that, about how, how not only was it important in terms of the sequence, uh, Jude and, and Lanier, but also um, how far apart each song was right. on the record. And John also wanted his records to not be more than 20 minutes long on each side because he wanted his uh, albums to be loud. And it was, it was proven to him early, I guess, in his career that uh, if you went beyond 20 minutes, the sound kind of began to fade. Yeah, it's, that I, I did not even know. That's something that I didn't know. And John Mazzini, you probably knew that already, Tom Aguiar, but that was something I did not know. And there was so much of what he said about how they would move songs around, listen to the sound. One song had to flow into the next. I mean, that was, that was all new to me. Well, and that's, that's why I put it in the book. And it was very important to the judge because the judge turns out, as, as you find, found out when you read the book, uh, was a classical musician who played the harpsichord, but he knew nothing about the Beatles or John Lennon. He had never listened to rock and roll. And we actually at one point brought in uh, recording equipment from the record plant where John recorded a lot and played tracks from the, uh, the two albums. Hmm. That's, That's terrific. That's terrific. So another extremely important part of your book is John's in-depth discussion about the importance of the songs on the rock and roll LP and what each song meant to him um, as a person, you know, intimately. So what songs had meant um, so much to him um, that you explained in, in the book. Um, I'll list out a, a couple of those. Um, Bebopalula and Stand By Me. What well, were his thoughts it, it on those? It, it wasn't so much that I was explaining it in the book, he was explaining it because I showed him uh, Plaintiff's Exhibit 35, which is the rock and roll album, and can you tell the court whether you had any particular reasons for performing each one of the songs on the rock and roll album? Answer, yes, there is a pretty good reason for each one. Bebopalula was one of the first songs I ever learned, and I actually remember singing it the day I met Paul McCartney. I was singing at the church, and McCartney was in the audience. Stand By Me was one of my big albums in the dance halls in Liverpool. That was a, a Benny King number 
And the same goes for Bebopalula. I knew these songs as a child. And then he, he went through the rest of them. You know, Ready Teddy, You Can't Catch Me, uh, Ain't That a Shame, um, Peggy Sue. He said, I have been doing that since it came out. And Buddy Holly did it. And in fact, I used to sing it every, I used to sing every song uh, that Buddy Holly put out. And then he mentioned Bring It On Home to me is one of my all-time favorite songs. And in fact, I have been quoted as saying, I wish I had written it. I love it that much, and I was glad to be able to do it. So he went through each one of the songs uh, on the album and explained how they were important to him. Including what about, about Boney Maroney? Including Boney Maroney. And here I'll quote again, was one of the very earliest songs along with Bebopalula. And I remember singing it the only time my mother saw me perform before she died. So I was hot on Boney Maroney. That is one of the reasons. Also, I liked Larry Williams, who recorded it. It's That's priceless. That is just, I mean, you're getting it straight from him, what each of these songs meant. This is just I, I mean, I was jumping up and down at that point. Well, and I, I think, you know, you can, aside from listening to uh, Scott McKinley's wonderful uh, audible version, uh, you, you know, you as a reader, when you're reading it, you can almost picture John Lennon sitting on the witness stand saying these words. Yeah. It's very yeah. poignant. Very poignant. So why was it so important for you to have John share this information with Judge Grisey? Well, because, uh, you know, Grisey really wanted to know as much as he could uh, about uh, John's creative process. So it was important for John to explain, you know, each one of these songs to the judge. And he went through, he went through every one of them. Uh, and... The only one he said, he said, John also had a good reason to include just because. He said, Phil Spector talked him into it. <laughs> <laughs> but that, it, it was just, it was an important part of the proof uh, of why John made this album in the first place. Sure. How long did you work on this case with John? How many months did, did you work together on this? Well, it, it, really, it really wasn't that long because um, we started in, uh, you know, talking about this in February uh, of 75. And when they filed the federal court case, which I think was another way of Morris saying, all right, you won't, you won't come to me and talk about a settlement. Now I'm going to sue you in federal court. That was the fatal mistake because cases in New York courts, the state courts, move very slowly. In the federal court in New York, and I'm sure in federal courts around the country, uh, the, judge, the cases are assigned to one judge by lot uh, the day the case is filed. And that judge is in charge of the case for all purposes right through the trial. This case was assigned to Judge Lloyd McMahon, who had been on the bench for 16 years. I knew Judge McMahon. I knew what kind of a trial judge he was, and I knew this case was going to move very quickly. And we got to trial in 10 months, which, which is extraordinary. 
Right. So, you know, before you're going in front of these judges, you know, all of them really before you, you knew their reputations. Yeah. What, yeah, what about Judge know. Grisey? Did, did you know Judge Grisey? No, I didn't because he'd only been on the bench four or five years. He was very young. He'd only been on the bench four or five years. And, and um, it, it was just a stroke of, of good fortune uh, yeah. that, that he got the case. Because this happened uh, after there was a mistrial on the second day of the trial before a jury, before Judge McMahon. Uh, but, but I knew that McMahon was not going to stand for any monkey business in the, in the courtroom. He, he ran the trial. Yeah. Don't tell, don't, you know, the lawyers, you've got your role. My role is to run the trial and make sure it moves quickly. And we're not wasting a lot of time. But to get a musician, a classical musician, and someone who knew the importance of music, like you say, what a gift, what a wonderful thing to work with Grisey, because he was so willing to listen and learn. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, well, if you look at the one photo in the book uh, that Bob Gruen took in January of, of 1976, when the trial started, when he sneaked the camera into the courtroom, and took a picture of John on the witness stand. We didn't have a jury. Both, both sides agreed to waive a jury in the, in the second trial it started. And if you look carefully at the photo, you see John kind of pointing, looking directly at Judge Grisey. And Judge Grisey has his hand on his uh, right, right side of his head, and he's looking directly at John. And standing in the middle of the picture uh, is... Mr. Shirtman, who was Morris Levy's lawyer, who kept jumping up and down, trying to interrupt these long colloquies between John and the judge, because he knew this ain't good. This, yeah. is, not, this is not going well. This is not going in my favor. <laughs> this is not working out well. Well, I won't give everything away because I want everybody really to get a copy of this book. Uh, you will treasure it and you will read it many times because this, as I said, is new material. This is, you, you just, I think about it as gold miners who are been mining and mining and mining and mining and suddenly you strike a load of gold and you're like, Eureka! So it's new material, but the end of the, of the book is very touching as you tell it, um, you tell it so well. Uh, I, the thing to me that it really touched me about the book is that you can tell that you not, knew John, not just as your client, but as a friend. And when you inscribed my book, you wrote to Jude, this isn't a story about John Lennon, the person. This is a story about John Lennon, the person, not the man. You didn't know John the Beatle. You knew John, your friend, the the person that you worked with on a daily basis. Tell us about that, John Lennon. Well, uh, he, you know, he was not into the music uh, business at the time, and uh, he loved New York. John loved New York City. Uh, he could he could walk around most of the time. People would leave him alone. Uh, there's, there's a great story where we were walking up Park Avenue one afternoon after his deposition and this middle-aged woman stopped him and stopped right in front of him and said, you're George Harrison. And he said, yes, I am. 
<laughs> and then she walked on and the two of us kept walking north on, on Park Avenue and started laughing out loud. But her mistake was that she should have asked him for an autograph. And I'm confident that he would have signed George Harrison. <laughs> I'm sure he would. <laughs> because that is so good. He, had, he had one rule when it came to autographs, not while I'm eating. I'll give you an autograph as soon as I'm finished eating. But he was just, he was a real person. He was funny. He had a great sense of humor. He was very shy. Uh, John did not like to, uh, to tell people no. Uh, that's why Morris Levy kept badgering him about getting this rough mix of the album so he could listen to his three, uh, three songs from his company, Big Seven uh, Music. Um, he was just a real person. Uh, we never talked about the Beatles. I never asked him, you know, what was it like during that? You know, or that wasn't part of why we were there, why we were together. I didn't ask him for an autograph. I didn't ask him for the picture that, uh, uh, that Bob Gruen took of us in uh, Sloppy Louis. I didn't even know who Bob Gruen was. That was the first time I'd met him when he came in and John had asked him to take a picture. And then a couple of weeks later, I got a, a note from somebody in John's office saying, uh, John thought you might like this picture from uh, one of your lunches. Oh. He, he, was a, he was a very thoughtful person. Yeah, and very dedicated to be there every single day, even when he wasn't called upon to testify. Exactly. He and Yoko attended 20 days of the trial, and he didn't have to be there every day, uh, and neither did she, but he called me. I was staying in a hotel in New York because I had too long a commute out to my home in New Jersey, so I was in a hotel during the trial, and he called me at midnight the night before the trial and said, uh, can Yoko come to the trial? And I said, oh, of course. And I said, I'm sorry, I would have invited her. Because this was when Sean was about three months old. And I said, yes, she can come. And they showed up the next day, picked me up in their limo with my colleague, Howard Roy. And um, they came every day. Yeah. Tell one of my favorite stories. And it was so thoughtful of you to do this because not I don't think a lot of people at that point Really, everybody knows John's story now, but in the 1970s, a lot of people didn't know his, his teenage and college years. But you knew that he went to Liverpool College of Art, and so you took him on a special outing to see an extraordinary building. Tell us that well, story. Well, we came out of the first day of, of uh, the deposition when they were taking, Morris's lawyers were taking his deposition, and uh, we were down on 43rd Street and Madison Avenue in New York, and I thought, well, I said to him, look, why don't we just go over to Grand Central Station uh, and we can have lunch at the Oyster Bar, which was on the lower level there. Very famous seafood restaurant in New York City. And he said, oh, said, I've never been in Grand Central Station. And I said, well, you're in for a treat because I knew as an artist, he would appreciate this, this amazing uh, building and the room inside and the way it was decorated and uh, he was, he was fascinated with it. Uh, and yeah. then the next day of the deposition, uh, after the, the woman stopped us and called him George Harrison, uh, I asked him if we wanted to have lunch because the deposition was over, we were finished. And he said, well, I better go home because 
you know, Yoko's uh, pregnant and she's in bed. This was in May uh, of 75. And uh, as we got closer to the Waldorf, he said, well, yeah, let's, let's have lunch. And uh, I said, well, let's go into the Waldorf Astoria. There's a, there's a neat kind of pub called the Bull and the Bear. And he said, well, I've never been in the Waldorf Astoria. So we went in, in the main, we went in the main entrance up across through this spectacular Art Deco uh, lobby uh, and then down to the, uh, the Bull and the Bear where he was greeted by the maitre d' who was this kind of tall, kind of middle-aged uh, Irishman who reached out and grabbed his hand and he said, it's a pleasure to meet you. Shook his hand and John said, it's a pleasure to meet you also. Oh, I love it. Well, we have so many people who are waiting to ask you questions. So let's see it. Our Jeff Emmerich is going to navigate us over to the Q&A. And um, let's see. Uh, Vito would like to know, Jay, is Morris the same guy that ran Roulette Records? Yes. Morris founded Roulette Records in uh, 1956. He was also the manager of Alan Freed, who was the famous disc jockey uh, who came from Cleveland uh, in, the, uh, in the early 50s. Yes. And I believe you said in another show that I had listened to, or maybe it was one that we did with, with Bob Wilson last week, did you say you had been to some of Alan Freed's shows before? Yes. Well, I was in high school from uh, 1951 to 1955, and um, I had a friend, Andy Moen, and I would, uh, would go to the shows either at the Fabian's Fox or, or the Brooklyn Paramount. And I didn't, I didn't know at the time that not only was uh, Morris, uh, you know, managers, Alan Freed's manager, uh, but he was also the promoter of these shows. Wow. That's amazing. Of course, I think most people have seen American Hot Wax, which you can only see now on YouTube, and it's very scratchy and breaks up and everything. But you were there. You you were there. It's so exciting to know someone who was actually at those shows. Yes. Yeah, it's a classic. It okay, Ed Hartnett says, what was the percentage of cases you won as a lawyer in your career? Oh, I, I have no idea. I mean, if... A yeah, lot. If, if you're going to... No, if you're going to try cases, be a trial lawyer and try cases, uh, you're going to lose cases and you're going to win cases. Uh, and... Uh, I never kept, I never kept track of anything like that. Didn't right. have time to. Right. <laughs> no, you don't. You do not. That's right. Um, Dara Roberts wants to know, did you and John stay friends after his case was closed? No. No, I didn't see John after that. Uh, you know, it was interesting. John, uh, Morris's lawyers tried to get uh, John when they were cross-examining, when he was cross-examining him, to say that he and Morris were very close friends. And John said, you know, uh, I just thought he was a character. Um, I think it takes a long time to have really close friends. And I don't count many people in that category. Yeah, I agree. I agree. If you have one, you're blessed. You know? Yes. You're really exactly. blessed. Yeah. Um, Dara follows up by saying, what's your favorite John Lennon song? Help. How, why? 
I think it tells how even in the early, early years, uh, John realized that this Beatlemania had gotten completely uh, out of control uh, and that they had no control over their lives. And, and one of the things he, he told me in, I think, one of our walks through Central Park, uh, that um, he, did, he did not really be a, a father to Julian. And he didn't want that to happen with whatever this child was that was going to be born sometime in 1975. Uh, and he just wanted, I mean, the, the last day of the counterclaims, when John's part in the role in the case was over, he had testified, he'd done a great job, that was it. He didn't even come to the final argument the next day uh, because A, he didn't, he told me, I don't want to hear any more of Shirtman's and uh, Levy's lies. And secondly, I want to take over taking care of uh, Sean. And that's what he did. Yeah, definitely. Um, Ed Hartnett says, what happened to Morris Levy after the trial? Did he just disappear into obscurity or? Oh, no, no, Morris, Morris kept, you know, um, no, Morris kept going. He also owned that uh, chain of uh, record stores up and through New England called Strawberries. But in uh, 1986, 1986, he was indicted by a federal grand jury in Newark. Uh, I think there were 17 members of the Genovese crime family that were indicted along with Morris uh, as a result of a huge investigation by the federal government into uh, their role in the record industry, the mafia's role in the record industry. And in, in 1989, Morris was convicted of attempted extortion, along with a, one of the soldiers uh, of, uh, uh, from the, the, the Genovese crime family. He appealed the decision. Uh, he was sentenced to 10 years and a $200,000 fine. He appealed the decision. He lost and two months before he was supposed to uh, surrender uh, and go to prison, he died of colon cancer. Hmm. Wow. He was, he was 62 years old. Oh, my goodness. Wow. I would say that sounds young to me. <laughs> it is. <laughs> very young, very young. Younger well, every day. Um, Scott wants to know, what was your impression of Bob Dylan during that case? Well, I took Bob's deposition, and uh, through the case, uh, the, the Lennon case, uh, this was a few years after the Lennon case was over, and uh, I had met Jim Keltner, who played on a number of John's albums, but he also uh, played on, uh, on Bob's albums when he went into that Jesus period. Remember, he made a couple oh, yeah, of albums sure. and was... Yep. and was touring. And yep. he had told me that, uh, that Bob was a very difficult guy uh, to deal with. Very, very difficult. Uh, and every time I asked him a question that day in the deposition, he ended it by saying, sir. No, I don't, I don't remember that, sir. And I, I don't know what the purpose of that was. To, I, don't, I don't know if he was trying to unnerve me or, or what. Um, but Bob is a very strange guy. I mean, I've heard a lot of stories. I mean, Jimmy Iovine, 
the famous producer has some great stories about Dylan. Yeah, he came to Monroe, Louisiana, which, by the way, is the city that's hosting the John Lennon birthday party this coming weekend. It's the longest running John Lennon birthday party in America. We started it the year before John passed and Yoko was twice recognized. It's a big deal. Lots of live bands and all this stuff. And anyway, Bob played a concert there. Well, we were going to have a big party afterwards and they had advertised Bob Dylan after party. Well, Bob was driving down the main drag where the pub is, saw the sign, had his driver pull into the back of the pub, told him to go get someone to come out. And he said, I don't want that sign up there. And they said, you, you don't want Bob Dylan after party? Nope, I want that taken down. Well, we're honoring you. We were going to play all your, nope, take it down. No. So they did. <laughs> well, I had, I had a, a fellow I represented who was, uh, Stu Kimball, who was in a band called Face to Face, and I helped them get a record deal in the 80s. They were in a movie with Diane Lane when she was eight, 18 years old called um, Streets of Fire, and which has now become kind of a cult classic. Yep. But, uh, Stu played with Bob for 15 years, and he told me that uh, Bob had these, these very odd rules, like when the show was over, uh, the band had to stand in back of, in back of Bob, and not smile. They couldn't. They couldn't bow. They couldn't smile. They were just supposed to stand there. And Bob had one bus with uh, a, a woman who was an assistant of his, and I think that the tour manager or his or his regular manager. He would go off in this big bus, and then the, everybody else would pile into a second bus when they were on the road. Oh my gosh, very strange, very yeah. unique, shall we say, unique. Yes. Okay, yes. Cynthia Serto says, hey Jay, I met you at the Fest in Chicago. Whatever happened to Morris Levy's lawyer after the trial, and did you ever have any other cases with him? No, but uh, there was a book written in 2000, 10 or 2011 by a professor uh, of uh, music and popular music at a uh, college in uh, Denver. I think it was a part of the University of Colorado. And there's a page in there where Shirtman talks about how he took John's deposition. And John showed up uh, in torn jeans and a torn t-shirt and his hair was dirty and greasy and he didn't answer any questions, and that was a complete lie. He did not take John's deposition. One of the reasons that he was so ill-prepared for the trial was he turned the whole preparation for the trial over to a younger partner who had only been a partner for a short period of time, and then he came in at the last minute and tried to, you know, try the case. You can't do that. You can't do that. It's like, it's like you and Lania, you know, uh, not preparing for this, this show tonight. Yeah. It's just crazy. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to put that on my uh, website very soon uh, where I'm going to show the part that he quoted about uh, just lying about who John was and how he was, how he acted at the trial. 
Right. And he was meticulously dressed. I mean, he was, I mean, his tie that he's showing in that one picture at Sloppy Louis is very avant-garde, but he has on a tie. His hair was cut. I mean, that was a shock to you, the haircut. Um, yeah, it was. You know, but he, he I, it never did. Was he looking sloppy? No, no. And he answered every question. And the, I, I don't, I have to tell you about the tie. The tie he bought at a secondhand store on the Upper West Side, and it was a hand-painted tie. And if you can really get a good look at it, it's a butterfly caught in a spider's web. And John, I said to him, "What's the deal with the, what's the deal with the tie?" And he said, "Well, I'm the butterfly, and I'm caught in Morris Levy's spider's web, and I'm going to wear this tie this tie." every day of the trial. Oh my goodness. Oh, I love that. I love it. Well, um, Tom Aguiar, I don't know if you've met Tom yet, but he and Robin Roberts run Octopus's Garden fanzine. It's the oldest one, I think, in existence. There may be some older in Europe, but I know in America it is. And oh, Lena's showing the picture. Say something, Lena, so your, your face will come up on the screen. So, oh, okay. So, this is the, the photo that Jay was referencing from Sloppy Louie's. Yes. Yep. Bob Gruen took it. And the, the other thing, Lena, is that uh, after that first day, uh, when, we got in the, when we got in the limo for the lunch break, the first day of the trial, uh, I said to John, what, what do you want to eat? And he said, we're only eating fish. And I told the limo driver, I asked him to take us down near the East River where the old Fulton fish market was. And I knew there were a number of terrific seafood restaurants there, old ones. And we pulled up in Sloppy Louis, in front of Sloppy Louis, and it was, it was kind of a dump, but great, great seafood, great Italian food. And we ate there every day for 20 days. Ooh, I hope they had a wide assortment of Dishes. <laughs> well, and calamari, I think, was and, the favorite. And I tell, I tell the story in the beginning of the book about how 20 years later, <clears throat> I took a client there in 1996, and I hadn't been in Sloppy Louis since the trial. And I saw uh, the Red Album up on the wall, signed by John, and I asked the cashier, um, what's, what's the story with the Lennon album, with the Lennon uh, autograph? He said, oh, years ago, uh, John and Yoko used to come in here every day with a bunch of lawyers. And after they stopped coming in with the lawyers, they would come back themselves. So I guess they liked the food. Yeah, they did. Those are some happy memories, those lunches. I love that part of the book. Well, I was telling you about Tom and Octopus's Garden fanzine, and you two need to get together because I bet he would love to do a, an interview with you for the magazine. But his question is, when reading John's testimony, I didn't get the impression of a brash rock and roller, the one that we had known. I got the impression of a craftsman explaining his craft with respect and reverence. Was this obvious to you in the courts? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, John, <clears throat> John never, never lost his temper. Uh, and um, I mean, once or twice, uh, Shortman would ask a, a question on cross-examination and John might, might snap at him, uh, like, you know, how do you know that the public was, was uh, confused about the two albums? And John went into that, I quote it right in the beginning of the book there, that, uh, yeah, 
I know because I walk around the city. I, I got in a taxi cab and the driver said to me, John, I bought the wrong album. Uh, so John was very, he was the best witness I ever had. Wow. He was, he was very clear in his testimony. He had a great sense of humor. Uh, and and he, he rarely re forgot anything that we had talked about. So we, we spent a lot of time going over the areas that I was going to question him about. So he knew exactly where we were going. And that's hard to do with Mr. Shortland jumping up every few minutes. And I love the image that, and, and Scott really carries it out so well of Shortman talking through his mouth. He always talks like that. <laughs> you know, and then, then, that was a running joke that John, John and I had because you couldn't, the plaintiffs in a case sit in the front table. So they're between you and the, us and the judge. And, you know, sometimes I just, I couldn't hear him. So I'd stand up and say, Mr. Shirtman, I can't hear you. <laughs> and then I would turn around, kind of turn around a little bit and look back at John and he would just, you know, kind of stare at me. <laughs> And Judge Grise, you could tell Judge Grise was getting fed up with it as well. Oh, he was. He was. He told me a couple of times. That's enough. I That's know. enough. It's so annoying. Well, Carol Gasquire has several questions. She wants to know, first of all, when are, are you going to do a hard copy of the book? And then how did you get the transcripts for the book? Did you receive the full transcript after the trial, for the whole trial? Well, in a trial like that, um, the court reporters, uh, with their little stenotype machines, they rotate in and out of the courtroom during the day. And so that that night, uh, it's, auto it's automatic, unless you tell them you don't want it, but you do want it, uh, you get what they call daily copy. They will deliver the copy of the day's transcript to you at usually 7.30 or, or 8 o'clock at night uh, so that you can have it for the next day. So when the trial ended, I had the entire uh, transcript, uh, you know, in, in my possession. And then when the appeal went forward, uh, the entire trial record and all of the exhibits had to be printed in uh, what they call a record on appeal. So I had the transcript twice and then all of the exhibits. And plus I, I retained the, um, the exhibits that we used uh, of Beatles and, and John Lennon albums to show about show the care that he took in preparing uh, albums. Yeah, it's interesting, Lena, that you mentioned the difference in the two covers because that's one of the big parts of the trial is John is horrified by that Roots cover. And then there's the beautiful rock and roll cover. So, I mean, you, you nailed it. Well, and John, John's testimony was, you know, as we quote in the, in the book, uh, the, the cover was cheesy. The photo, yeah. the photo of me was, uh, was awful. Uh, you know, it, was it looked like it was from KTEL Records. Yes, it did. <laughs> it did. Well, and, and also on the, at, at, on the back, he advertised two other albums of his, you know, greatest soul hits or whatever it was. I mean, nobody, nobody did that, no. particularly the Beatles. No, no. So, well, we'll do one last question, then we'll get to our trivia questions. But Cindy wants to know, you describe Yoko as businesslike during the Yoko audition chapter. Did you ever see a different side to her than the, the businesswoman? 
yes. You want to just say yes? <laughs> that's, 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 all, that. that's all. Are we still saying. on air? <laughs> I think that's a lawyer's answer. I like it. I like it. All right. Well, sorry. Thank you very much. Sorry for that answer. <laughs> but I won't jump up. No, I, I, I will say one thing. Throughout the trial and all these lunches and the limo rides and times I went up to the, um, to the Dakota, you know, to get ready for depositions and, and other things. Um, Yoko never interfered. She never said you should do this or do that, or you shouldn't. There was, there was one time when we had the, when we had the mistrial that day. Uh, and when I came back from the chief judge's chambers asking for another judge, uh, she said, I was talking to the two of them in the courtroom. They had waited for me. Uh, and I said, look, you know, we're going to get another judge. And she said something like, well, this, this shouldn't have happened or that, you know, this is, this is, this is wrong or something. And John said to her, Jay, John, uh, Yoko, Jay's in charge. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you know, those, those things happen. They, they just do, you know, um, before we get to the trivia, tell everyone, Jay, where they can get your book and how they can follow you on social media. Well, they can get it on um, my website, which is uh, Lennon, the mobster, and A-N-D, the lawyer.com. They can also get it on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble. Uh, my um, social media, is, I'm on Facebook uh, and uh, Instagram. And if you just go Jay Bergen, John Lennon, that will pop up. Right. There's a lot of, a lot of, I have a, I have this recent college graduate who is just a Haley, uh, Haley, uh, um, oh God, now I'm drawing, McCraw, who is just a whiz at uh, the social media. And there's really a lot of fascinating uh, information and uh, pieces of uh, evidence from the trial that are on the, the website and the social media. I, I noticed, I, I don't know if Haley did the posting about this webinar on your Facebook page, but it was yeah. brilliant, yes. just brilliant. So, yeah. um, and Scott said he will send a link to the audio book after the discussion. So uh, yeah. Yeah, he could could do that or send it. However, Scott, you want to do that? Just let us know. We'll wait to hear from you. Um, all right, Lena, I will turn it over to you for our trivia questions. We have three, and um, the first one is for a copy of Shades of Life, Part One. Which, if you don't want to read it, you can work <laughs> out with it. You can get some some very good bicep work with this book. Or maybe some shoulder work. So you, question. Well, you, gave, you gave me a copy of it. And uh, when we were in Chicago, and I appreciate that. And it's, it's a fascinating book. Fascinating. Absolutely. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Absolutely. All right, Lena, take it away. Okay, so the first person that correctly answers the trivia question will be the winner of Shades of Life. If you guys type it in in your chat, because uh, Rand and I are looking, we're watching. All right. In his illustrious career, 
Jay served as the litigator in a case between Grand Funk Railroad and the founder and manager of the band. What was his name? Ooh, that's hard. Yes, uh, Amy. 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 Ding, Amy. Ding, ding, ding. That was it fast. Carrie Knight. Amy, if you already have this book and you would prefer to have a John Lennon t-shirt that Rand drew, he's a, a remarkable artist. He did the cover work for this book. So if you'd rather have the John Lennon t-shirt or a Beatles t-shirt, we can send you that. If you would please um, reach out to me on Messenger with your um, address, we will get you a copy of that book. Okay, Lena, go, go, go. Okay, our next prize is a candle. It's backwards, but it's Strawberry Fields flavor. It is uh, from Deep Groove Candle Company. Okay, our question is, during the Roots trial with Morris Levy, John and Yoko's professional photographer friend was often present and he took photos in the courtroom as well as at many lunches that John J. Yoko, Cindy, <laughs> that uh, they took at Sloppy Louis. That famous photographer wrote the foreword for Jay's book, Lennon, the Mobster, and the Lawyer. Okay, I think that Tom Aguiar was the first person and John Bazzini was next. They were both okay. at 841. So if you will send the candle to Tom, John, we will send you another prize and it will be a good prize because y'all tied. Y'all were exactly at the same time. So congratulations to you. Very, both. very astute tonight. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, last question for a copy of Recipe Records, a culinary tribute to the Beatles. One of the songs that we discussed tonight, a song that appeared on the Rock and Roll LP, was labeled by John as one of my all-time favorite songs. And John was quoted as saying that he wished he had written this song. Which song was it? Ding, ding. Uh, it didn't, it didn't be that was it. it. Somebody, Somebody got, got it. it. Somebody got, got it. it. Oh, yeah. Carol Guesquire. Good job, Carol. Bring it on home to me. So, Carol, I don't know Carol. if you have her wonderful uh, I think she has all my to the Beatles. It was a tie. Oh, it was a tie? Okay, Rod. Is it Rod? I believe. Rod, we will make sure that you get uh, a prize. So, cause y'all are yeah. right at the exact same time. Thank you everybody. We've had such a great um, audience and so many wonderful questions. Yay. Oh, it's been a very remarkable evening and um, I have completely enjoyed myself and uh, always lovely to be here with Jude and um, to talk about John. And even though George was my beetle, but, it's um, I'm trying it, to win her over. I've done the best. He I is can. trying and I'm, I'm getting there. It does give me goosebumps when I read Jay's book and he talks about his conversations. He recalls the conversations with John. It, 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 it is stirring um, and it's very emotional. Um, so thank you. Thank you, Jay, for penning this wonderful, wonderful book. Um, we are just very fortunate to have this in the Beatle world now. 
Thank you, Lenny. I really, I really appreciate that. It was, that's, it was why, that's why I wrote this book, so that people would know this, this diff, different John Lennon. This is a lens that we have not had to, to view John through, and Jude does a fantastic job of um, getting out all of these experiences that he had, and uh, she, she researches tooth and nail to get to get the bottom of all the, you know, accurate facts. And um, your book provides a, a whole new um, point in his life. And, and your chapter on that fateful day um, is, it is very emotional. So thank you know for sharing that. Scott McKinley typed into the, chat that he had to record that three times because it was it was really too hard to record so and I've I've heard Jay talk about it and you feel the, the same way Jay we but yes. you know what we he is we've said John Lennon a million times tonight and <laughs> we keep saying it so he is yeah. very and we celebrate him on his birthday and um he's he was he was a kind soul he was. Jay, thank he was. you for giving your time tonight. We really appreciate it so much. Well, I appreciate very much being able to talk about it and uh, with, the, with the two of you. It's, uh, it was great fun. Terrific fun. Thank you. Well, you, we, um, we, Bob Wilson and I got to talk with Jay on uh, Tomorrow Never Knows. If you check that on Facebook and we're going to do part two. And we'll be talking this Sunday about things that we did not cover tonight or last week. We're going to take, talk about John's opinion of his birthday for one thing. And um, so tune in. Uh, and Scott McKinley says, thank you, Jay. You are the best. Everybody is saying uh, they have been inspired. So we do very much appreciate it. And before we go tonight, one more time, an invitation to join us Friday evening not Saturday, but Friday, October the 7th, uh, at Enoch's Irish Pub. You know, John very much considered himself an Irish artist. He had bought an island in Ireland and planned to retire there. He had lobbied with the guy that wrote Irish artists to be recognized as an Irish artist. So um, it is a perfect place to meet at Enoch's Irish Pub Friday night, live music with Josh Madden and so many other bands. And we will be celebrating his birthday. Hope you can all be there in Monroe, Louisiana for cake and a toast to John and a chance to remember this unique and creative soul. So thank you, everyone. Thank I you, wish, Josephine. Jude, I wish I could be there. I wish you could too. Next year, you need to come and give the toast to John and be our master of ceremonies. Okay. All right. I'll, go, I'll be there All right. too. All right. <laughs> and everybody, um, Dara mentioned uh, prayers for Ringo. Yes, definitely. Going yes. through COVID, we will keep him in our hearts. Well, thank you, everyone. And Lena, right. Until we meet again, here's to food for thought, food for the soul, and food for the love of rock and roll. Ta ra, and thank shine you. on. <laughs>